Right. So um, we had a great reading there from Noah, the classic Palm Sunday reading. This is the beginning of Holy Week, so big deal in the church calendar. And um, I was thinking about it. The thing I like about something like Holy Week is that um, it's like someone else's drama in a way. Like we're focusing on this drama that happened a long time ago. And that's super helpful when you're in the middle of a big drama to have like somebody else's drama to focus on. And it's like watching a movie, you watch the movie, it's not your drama, you kind of relax into it. And then actually you're able to process stuff that happens in your own life through the movie because it's an indirect kind of process. Music works like that too and all. So I'm, I'm kind of looking forward to uh, this Holy Week and this period of social distancing and our big pandemic drama. But I was uh, looking at the text that um, Noah read to us. I was actually looking at the Luke version of it. And um, it's super clear there that um, the geography of the whole setting is, is setting a tone. Like Jesus starts in uh, Jericho, I think it is, which is by the Dead Sea. And it's like 800 feet below sea level. He's making a long ascent to the Mount of Olives. It's like 17 miles. The Mount of Olives is like, I don't know, 2,600 feet above sea level. It actually overlooks the old city of Jerusalem by 100 feet or so. Um, And he comes to Bethany, which is like a favorite little village on the Mount of Olives for for, um, Jesus. He had his friends, uh, Martha, uh, Mary, and Lazarus. So the four of them were like four single adults, which is kind of an unusual social arrangement at the time. So he's right near his friend's area. And then he comes to the um, Mount of Olives uh, the, where the, the processional into the city uh, originates. And he's got to go down the Kidron Valley in order to get to Jerusalem and then up one more time to the Temple Mount and that whole area. So the geography is setting this uh, tone of like ups and downs. And then Palm Sunday itself is like, it's, it's ups and downs. So it starts with this celebration and everyone's happy and they're throwing cloaks in front of Jesus' feet. And um, in Luke's um, version of this, it's clear that Jesus is enjoying himself. You know, like he's, he's, he's part of the celebration. Uh, the gestures are meaningful to him. Like he's rejoicing. He's not thinking, oh, these fair weather fans won't be there with me. You know, in a couple of days, as many preachers kind of make it seem like it's all fake, but he's enjoying the celebration and the support he's getting. And, um, and then he comes to the overlook on the Mount of Olives where, wow, you, you pan around and you see the whole, the whole city in front of you is quite breathtaking. And he starts to weep. He's sorrowing. He's experiencing like anticipatory grief for what's coming both for himself and then he understands what it means for the nation, that the nation is rejecting his message of peace and there will only be hardship as a result. And so there's this up and down experience. And I think we're all experiencing that probably in this time of, like usually we, we kind of toggle between happiness and sorrow, you know, a little more slowly, but I don't know about you, but I'm like every day, I'm feeling moments of joy and blessing and appreciation. And then I get a text or a message and I'm feeling, I'm feeling anxious, I'm feeling sad, and I'm going back and forth uh, multiple times in a day. 
um, just in terms of how my emotions are functioning. Um, and that's just like, that's just Jesus being a human being. Um, that's how we experience life. And, and you know, uh, happiness isn't a permanent state and sorrow isn't a permanent state. They, we, we're going back and forth between them all the time. Um, you know, laughing and crying feel very similar, actually, don't they? You know, they, they can both involve tears. I think I probably told that story of my daughter, Amy. It's such a vivid story when she, uh, during the, the Great Recession of 2008, she had to move to Connecticut and she left all her family and friends and she was just fearsome, lonely. And she's in a car doing a job she doesn't want to do. She runs out of gas and the GPS lady speaks to her and she feels consoled because a human voice is speaking to her and she starts crying. And of course she gets out and she's pumping the gas and some middle-aged dude is asking her awkwardly, are you okay, ma'am? And she like finishes her gas and spills her coffee in the car. And, and then she's laughing because she realizes how absurd it is to be consoled by the GPS voice on the phone. And so she's laughing and then she's thinking how pathetic it is that she's sitting in this car with spilled coffee laughing and so lonely that, it, you know, and she starts sobbing in, in the car and then she just puts it in gear and drives off, you know, to get out of the scene. And it's like, yep, that's kind of, that's kind of what it's like to be in this, uh, to be in this state. So um, I was just thinking about um, like the time when I was, had the deepest sorrow of course was when I lost my wife, which is now about eight years ago. Um, Oceana's dad, um, we had his, uh, his uh, death anniversary just yesterday. So I was thinking about uh, Nancy, uh, who I lost in 2012. And um, as I look back on it now, it's kind of surprising how many of my memories of that time actually are positive memories and how like little consolations and comforts are, are like more present in my memory bank than, than the grief and the sorrow. Um, like I remember two days before the memorial service, so it's two days after Nancy died suddenly, I woke up and I was just so looking forward to the presidential debate between Obama and um, uh, Romney. Obama had had a bad showing and he was needed to, you know, and I was just like, it was like the seventh game of the World Series and like, what, what was that all about? Or um, I can remember early on, I, um, as people were dropping off uh, casseroles, which is awesome. Um, but they would like knock at the door and then I'd have to go to the door and interact with them. And, and I was like, just thinking to myself, why don't people bring wine and cheese and chocolate? And, and why don't they just drop it off so I don't have to like deal with their grief and my own. And, and like within five minutes, there was Cassie dropped off, uh, I think two bottles of wine and cheese, it was like good cheese. It was Zingerman's or that upscale market by my house back then, and, and chocolate, I think. And I was like, oh my gosh, I was so consoled by the wine and the, and here I am thinking about it, remembering it, feeling all the warm uh, feelings about that experience. And it was like a really, really dark time too. Um, so, you know, they, the other thing that I've been noticing in this, story is how important um, gestures are. 
like Jesus getting on the donkey was a prophetic gesture. Um, the people um, throwing their cloaks on the ground in front of the procession was a gesture. The palm, uh, the palm branches were a gesture. And, you know, we often talk about like, oh, it's a mere gesture. Like we, we dismiss the significance of gestures because we're not, we don't have a lot of ritual in our society. And, but gestures are really important. And they're super important at a time like this, especially with the social distancing, because in a sense, all we have in connecting to people outside of our, our little pods or whatever our workspace is, is um it's gestures you know like we text people we give them a call we have a, a zoom meeting um something happens and we feel powerless i you know i just heard yesterday asked uh, laura's permission to share this but just dad uh tested positive and he had some underlying conditions and it was you know really stressful and i i got the text message about that and i felt so powerless and it was like frustrating and distressing to feel so powerless, like nothing I could do. And then I'm thinking about how, much, how powerless they must have felt. And I was remembering what Emily was saying about trauma, how while you're in the middle of difficult situations, if you can name the feeling in the middle of it, it's super helpful. And I just was like, I'm feeling so powerless. And, and then I, I had this little notebook, small notebook I keep. And I just, I wrote, I have a place, um, praying for Lauren, uh, Jeff, Laura's on our board. And I just, I put Jeff's dad, I wrote Jeff's dad down and it just felt good to do that. And then later I heard his, his dad is uh, Mike. And so I crossed out Jeff's dad and I wrote Mike down and, and I took that with me to bed and I, you know, prayed for him before going to sleep. And I remembered his name this morning and it was like, of all the things that, I really have some rock solid belief in the meaning of it's praying for other people that like, I just don't doubt that it's useful and I don't know anything about how it works or if it works and all that in that utilitarian sense. But it's like all the, they say the, the brain has 200 billion neurons and just in the cerebral cortex, it's like, 200 trillion connections and amazing things are composed of a gazillion small connections and that's got to be true of love like if if little gestures and little connections aren't meaningful then like how how is everything put together so um i'm really appreciating the importance of gestures in this time and how Jesus accepted the gestures as meaningful and how it's important for us to do the gestures, even though in the moment they see, seem so paltry or small compared to the needs around us, they really make a difference. I was reading somewhere that um, social, one of the problems with social distancing is it can decrease your immune system. Holy smokes, who wants to have their, you know, but, Things like texts and phone calls strengthen the immune system. So there's something we can do to strengthen our connections, even in the social distancing. So maybe for our, our um, meditation, what we could do is just get comfortable where we're sitting and um, 
if you if you like to write things down for your meditation that's that's fine or just uh close your eyes center yourself in the in the chair where you're sat or laying down and um just open your memory bank to uh, an experience you had sometime in your life maybe it's in this crisis we're going through of a gesture being receiving a gesture like what it was and how it felt when someone reached out to you or sent you a song or just uh, sent you a text out of the out of the blues let's just take a little bit of time now to savor a gesture that we were on the receiving end of Good. And then now maybe just as we close, you could um, open your heart to the spirit. I like, I like to think of the spirit um, as like this dancing presence around us all the time and um, kind of moving in and out of our thoughts and our experience. And open your heart to the spirit, um, you know, moving you, inspiring you uh, to do a, a little gesture the next time something might make a difference to someone that seems to you so small just let's all just take a moment to open our hearts to the spirit um, moving in us in that way so spirit of god we we invite you we welcome your presence in us and in the middle of what we're going through we pray that our hearts would be sensitive and alive and alert to nudges or little inspirations that we have to, um, to lift someone else up um, in the middle of our feeling down as a way of our being lifted up into the presence of your love. We ask this in the name of love. Amen. Eric's going to do our mama bear minute, maybe. Sorry, I, I muted you, but let's introduce Liz again. Oh, is that me? Whoops. And now, ladies and gentlemen, from Dallas, Texas, <laughs> is our own Liz Dyer. Thank you, Ken. <laughs> uh, good morning. I'm happy to be here with all of you again. Um, I think it's very odd that we don't um, talk about what we're going to say together and yet things really flow together. A lot of what uh, you talked about today, Ken, are things that have been on my mind. <clears throat> I know from talking to a lot of mama bears this week that it's been a difficult week. And mostly it's been difficult because it's like a roller coaster ride for us. Uh, one moment we're okay, and the next moment we're terrified and overwhelmed. 
And as I was going about my week, I was really trying to pay attention and um, discover something that would help us in these difficult times. And I heard one person say something very simple, but it really struck a chord with me. They said, maybe if we change the way we're thinking about some of this, that it will help us. Um, the example they gave, which you probably heard, um, is instead of thinking we're stuck at home, we can think we're safe at home and be grateful for that. And the reason it struck such a chord with me is it reminded me of something that Brene Brown talks about when she talks about cultivating gratitude and joy into our own lives. One thing she said that was amazing to me is she said in 12 years of research, she never met one single person that said they experienced joy who did not also practice gratitude. I thought that was pretty amazing, not one single person. And she makes a point of saying she's not talking about an attitude of gratitude. She's actually talking about practicing gratitude. Some examples she gave was starting a gratitude journal where you actually write down things that you're grateful for, writing thank you notes, practicing appreciation in your relationships where you let people know how much they mean to you and what you appreciate about them, meditating on gratitude or creating gratitude art, things that you're act actively doing that are connected to gratitude. And she also talks about how joy and happiness are different that happiness is very connected to things outside of ourselves. And so it comes and goes as those situations come and go. But she talks about how joy is something that comes from within and that it's tethered to our hearts with gratitude. Um, now there, are, you know, it sounds very simple, uh, but of course in real life, uh, things are much more complex. So she also gives some um, examples of things that can block us from experiencing joy. And one thing I think that maybe we're all susceptible to right now is what she calls dress rehearsing for tragedy. And she says, if we're dress rehearsing for tragedy, we're not gonna be experiencing joy. Um, and one reason we do that is we get to feeling joyful and then that makes us afraid like, oh no, um, something's gonna go wrong. Uh, my job's going really good and I can think about that, but I don't wanna think about it too much because it might go wrong. Or the example she gives is standing over the bed of her daughter while her daughter's sleeping and thinking, um, you know, what joy that brings to her, but then that joy being interrupted by the thought of what if something happens to her. So she encourages us to get in the habit of stopping dress rehearsing for tragedy because it's not going to make tragedy any less devastating if we do that. So this week, I just want to uh, challenge us to do three things if we want to try to experience joy, which I believe will help us in these difficult moments. Uh, one, let's start a gratitude journal. Let's write down three things every day that we're grateful for. We may repeat things and that's okay, but if we write them down, I think it'll help us notice them. And then when we notice them, we can be actively grateful and that will help us experience joy. Number two, let's practice appreciation in our relationships. Let's tell the people near and dear to us what they mean to us and what we appreciate about them. And that goes along with the gestures that um, Ken was talking about. Let's go out of our way to do something nice for those people. And then number three, let's stop rehearsing for tragedy. If we're doing that, it's going to rob us of experiencing joy. Um, I like what somebody says, let's live in the what is instead of the what if. So I hope you have a better week. I love you. Remember, you're not alone.